This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Biden administration has a nominee for Secretary of the Navy. Carlos del Toro is a retired Navy destroyer commander and former program manager at Space and Naval Warfare Command. Defense News reports if the Senate confirms him, del Toro will leave the company he founded, SBG Technology Solutions. The Senate will vote on the White House nominee for Director of the Office of Personnel Management this week. Kieran Ahuja served as Chief of Staff of OPM from 2015 to 2017. The vote on her confirmation will likely go through before the Senate goes into recess Friday. Marine Corps Major General Matthew Glavie is the Biden administration's choice to become the top uniformed IT official in his service. Glavie's head of the Marine Corps Forces Cyberspace Command now. FedScoop reports if the Senate confirms him, he'll replace Lieutenant General Loretta Reynolds as Deputy Commandant for Information. The federal budget request process is officially 100 years old. A group of former federal budget officials argues it needs an update badly. Doug Crisitello is managing director at Grant Thornton and a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. He's former chief financial officer at the Department of Housing and Urban Development and the SBA. He's writing about the budget process in GovExec with co-authors Steve Redburn and Roy Myers. Doug, welcome. It is good to see you. You write that there is a dysfunctional dynamic throughout the budget process. What is that and why is it causing problems? Yeah, it really, it really is uh, dysfunctional, Francis, and great to be here today. Uh, the budget process is now, at least the modern budget process, is 100 years old this month. And, uh, you know, like anything that's 100 or anyone that's 100, it's definitely seen better days. And, you know, the process worked quite well for, you know, a good amount of time. But here in the 21st century, it just is not working at all. And I think what's driving that in large part is that our elected officials are using the budget process to score political points. And ultimately, that's the root cause of the problem here. You write in this piece, uh, the three of you, uh, about the Brookings Institution, uh, Committee for Responsible Federal Government and others, and I don't mean to pick on them, um, advancing reform opportunities, plans to reform the budget process. But you gentlemen write, these proposed reforms are unlikely to solve the problem. Why so, Doug? Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're good ideas, but they're definitely not sufficient to get to where we need to go. So doing things like enacting a biennial budget or having an automatic continuing resolution when the Congress fails to pass a budget on time, sure, they would be good things and they would help instill citizen trust in the budget process, but they don't ultimately get to the primary factor that we need to solve for here, which is what are the benefits of programs relative to their cost versus just simply looking at cost, right? We, we need to be thinking about how can we most effectively and sensibly use taxpayer dollars and just ensuring that the budget is done on time that would be great don't get me wrong but that's not sufficient to really get the country on the right 
fiscal path. All right. Fixing this, you write, a uh, good first step is for both branches to learn more about how well existing policies and programs work and how new initiatives might be implemented. I note that recently a group of senators, both sides of the aisle, have said we should do an inventory of all the federal programs. There, that's been a law for at least 10 years, I think. Senator Tom Coburn um, called for one of those uh, a number of years ago, and it still hasn't happened. Um, is that the holdup here? Is that Congress itself doesn't hold feet to the fire as far as getting these kinds of information that you're proposing? Yeah, look, I, I think there's blame uh, to be placed on both sides, both the executive and the legislative branches. But I really want to emphasize that we're not at you know square one or square zero here. There's been slow but steady process made in, in using evidence in both branches of government. So I think that's really important to, to understand, but there's a long way to go. Um, and, and again, both branches should be looking across the government when, they, when uh, it, a decision is made to address a public policy challenge. We, we need to look across agencies and across congressional committee jurisdictions to solve that problem and to deploy the resources smartly across the whole of government. Um, you write, uh, the federal budget process must be reworked to make it more policy-focused, forward-looking, and strategic. What would that look like? Uh, how would the budget process be different uh, in that environment, in that scenario, than it is today, Doug? Yeah, well, one, again, I'll allude to the, it, it, it would have more of a cross-cutting approach, uh, right? Rather than just single out, singling out specific programs at individual agencies. So think far more cross-cutting. But there needs to be that high-level vision. Um, I, think, I, I think President Biden's recent FY22 budget request moved in that direction. I mean, there, there was a, you know, without getting into, you know, the, the policy proposals offered, I actually think it was a pretty good blueprint for what that administration is seeking to achieve in its four years. And that's step one. And the budget process starts with submission of the president's budget. So I think that needs to be forward looking. And it's good that that document in particular I mean, I was pleased in looking at it and that there is a four-year vision there. So that's a great place to start. Um, and beyond that, I think we get into some statutory changes to the budget process that are needed. Um, you and your colleagues uh, write about the government's use of technology in the budget process. What are the breakthroughs that are available to the government now that wouldn't have been even maybe five to ten years ago to make the yeah. budget process work better, Doug? Right. So there's so much going on there, and I sort of think about it, uh, yeah, I bifurcated a bit, although there's uh, quite a bit of overlap between technology and data. So there's neat things happening with technology, the use of artificial intelligence and bots by uh, government budget offices to, to help inform and even automate to some extent, both the budget execution process, but using that to inform budget development. So there's neat sort of techie uh, things going on that are, are very worthwhile, but then on data, 
it's really, you know, the government has moved to be much more transparent in here in the 21st century. There's lots of data out there. The question becomes, yeah, how do we use that data to educate, inform, uh, and ultimately build trust with citizens? So uh, I think citizen engagement is, is a critical piece to this whole budget process that has not yet been uh, put in the right place. So, you know, we're, we're, we're getting there, not, not there yet, though. Doug Cristatello, thanks very much. It's great to see you, my friend. Great. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to that piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, five surprises in the Pentagon budget request. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's in there and what's not that Congress might squash. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The new budget request from the Biden administration is loaded with surprises for budget watchers. It includes things people didn't see coming and leaves out some things people were expecting. Mark Kansian, senior advisor in the International Security Program, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's writing about the five surprises in the Pentagon's 2022 budget request in breaking defense. Mark, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Number one on your list, and I don't know if these are in any particular order, but number one's the shrinking Navy. And I think the thing of, that you wrote about that surprises me the most, 12 ships the Navy's decommissioning this year at a time they're trying to add ships to the fleet. What do you make of that? Well, that's something of a surprise, although some of it was expected. They're trying to uh, decommission uh, some of the old cruisers rather than modernize them. They've been arguing with Congress about that for several years, trying to decommission some of the older uh, amphibious ships. And that's consistent with some Biden administration guidance about uh, getting rid of what they call legacy capabilities. But the Navy's also proposing to retire some LCS ships, uh, one of which has only been in the fleet for three or four years of a 30-year lifetime. So putting all that together uh, means that the fleet's going to get smaller, and, and that's a surprise. Even with the guidance about legacy systems, there'd been a bipartisan agreement, bipartisan consensus, the Navy needs to get larger, and this is a step back. The second item that you write about is unchanged Army end strength, and I think a lot of people expected the Army to be the pay-for for increasing the Navy and the Air Force, and it looks like not really any of those things are happening to any great extent, at least the way the administration wants to play it. And certainly in the 2022 budget, the Army has been able to hang on to its end strength. Now, they did that at some cost. Their budget goes down almost $4 billion, so it meant that they had to squeeze readiness and uh, modernization to put the money into their force structure, and they were quite upfront about doing that. The Army has traditionally focused on uh, force structure and its people and has uh, um, cut uh, modernization uh, if necessary. Whether that will hold for the long term is hard to say. Of course, this is just a one-year budget after the administration's been in office for only a few months. Uh, but the Army is also making an argument around town for its end strength and for keeping up the size of its structure. They're arguing that they have a major role in the Western Pacific, for example, as well as in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, the chief of staff has been on 
many uh, programs and spoken to just about every think tank in town making this argument. They were hoping that that sticks and that they can hang on to their uh, end strength. The third item on your list, I appreciate your wordsmithing here, vibrant nuclear modernization. Uh, and you write, the Biden administration's first budget strongly supports all three legs of the nuclear triad. Why is that a surprise to you, Mark? It's a surprise because the arms control community had pushed back very hard against the Trump administration's nuclear modernization program. The uh, uh, party platform had talked about the dangers of nuclear weapons and the need to cut back on spending there. So coming in with a strong support of all three legs was something of a surprise. Now, much of that is uh, a legacy of the Obama administration as well as the Trump administration. The Obama administration, to get the New START treaty, had agreed to modernize U.S. nuclear forces. In other words, it said the forces will get smaller, what we have will become uh, modern and up to date. And many of the people who were in that administration are now in the Biden administration, so that thinking is uh, continuing forward. But you have this tension with the Democratic left, which very much would like to uh, cut spending on nuclear forces. There's a possibility of arms control negotiations. And you know there's a real possibility that these programs are being maintained as bargaining chips and that eventually will be bargained away. The fourth item that you're writing about, you call few, you title it, few drones requested. Unmanned systems would receive a large boost was the expectation. And you write, in fact, they're just sputtering along. Um, what do you think the reason is behind that? Or is there maybe something to it that we don't see, as you just alluded to, uh, with the nuclear modernization? It was a surprise because there's been so much talk about innovative operational concepts and the need for investing in new and advanced technologies, uh, not just in the Biden administration, but across the, um, you know, the, the strategists in the national security community, that there was a widespread expectation that unmanned systems, particularly unmanned uh, aerial systems, would get a big boost. But when you look at the budget, it's, it's the opposite. In fact, several of the fleets are being divested uh, because they're older and the services are not buying very many unmanned aerial vehicles. The Air Force um, buys none. The Air F the Navy buys none. The Marine Corps buys six, uh, which is a step forward because the Marine Corps had been way uh, behind. But the next generation um, fighter program or air dominance program called NGAD uh, gets a big boost up. So you put all that together and it looks like not just that unmanned systems didn't take a step forward, but that the budget represents a full-throated endorsement of manned systems. We have about a minute left, Mark. The final item that you write about is the persistence of the F-35. Despite all the cues that we hear from inside and outside the Pentagon, it just keeps chugging along, doesn't it? It, it does. And again, that was a surprise because there are several reviews out there that uh, look like they're going to question the size of the F-35 by um, the um, uh, Adam Smith, you know, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee said, you know, he didn't want to put money down that rat hole. But when you look at the buy, I mean, it's just as uh, large as it was in, in previous years. There's no indication that the total numbers will go down. Now, of course, that could change. The Biden administration will come in with its um, uh, with its national security strategy in January, February. And when it does, you know, there may be some changes here and elsewhere. But all of these elements create 
facts on the budgetary ground uh, that will, I think, shape uh, what comes for the longer term. Mark Cancy, and thanks very much as always. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on the show. You can find a link to Mark's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, ransomware attacks ravage the private sector, academia, and critical infrastructure. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the federal government's secret sauce to fend off those attacks. We'll be right back. Ransomware attacks are hitting state and local governments in addition to private sector companies and academic institutions. The federal government, though, has escaped those attacks, at least so far. Daniel O'Donohue is Senior Vice President for Defense Programs at OWL Cyber Defense. He's former Director of Joint Force Development and Design at the Office of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Dan, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What are the best practices that agencies are doing well, apparently, to prevent attacks similar to what private inf infrastructure organizations are sustaining? Yeah, Francis, thanks, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, we certainly share a, a common thread, both a state-sponsored and a commercial one, that are converging to uh, both in the commercial, the, the federal, and really the, our most key networks that we've always protected in the intel community and defense. And I, I think the difference is there's a regulation and standard uh, that's applied it's led by the National Security Agency, those who know best uh, the threat. And there's a mandate, it's called raise the bar, that keeps pace with the threat. It's a constant game, uh, but we're at a threshold point that we share across commercial and federal. Uh, the offense, the cyber offense, has exceeded the cyber defense as expressed in software-only solutions. And so there's been a risk analysis and there's been an adjustment to how we deal with that imbalance that needs to migrate uh, to the commercial industry. The first conversation I remember having in this space 15 years ago with Mark Foreman revolved around how does one get ahead of the bad guys? How does one right. stay ahead of them? And the decision at the time and throughout uh, the, the interim has been no one's sure if we can. Where are you on that spectrum, Dan? Is it right. possible to get ahead of the bad guys and anticipate what the threat, how the threat landscape will evolve? Uh, it, it is. Uh, there is nothing as 100% cybersecurity. And what you don't want to do is compromise mission performance, right? You want to be able to protect and share. So uh, with those qualifications, um, there absolutely is a way to restore what I see as a current imbalance. Uh, my job before coming to industry on the joint staff was dealing with those who seek to undercut our defenses through cyber. Uh, these would be China, Iran, Russia, Korea, North Korea. Uh, uh, you know, a threat that is um, could be potentially crippling and they know, they saw a weakness. Uh, the military response was, hey, the way we fight is through the exchange of information, right? That we fight jointly, that our victory is in that. And so we doubled down. What was perceived as a vulnerability by the threat actually became a strength, but it required a shift in the technology. Uh, this goes back to kind of uh, Benjamin Franklin for the one of a nail, the one of a horse, the loss of a battle. Um, I would argue that hey, the software-based solutions have failed. We reached the limit and they were never satisfactory. And what we have now is a new technology, a new nail, if you will. This is hardware enforced, hardware separated, immutable controls uh, that allow us to have a more comprehensive layer defense and turn some of the weaknesses on our networks into the strongest points of security. Given the kind of the landscape that you laid out there and the way the military approaches cyber, 
What could the civilian agencies learn from that in order to protect themselves better? Is there something, some nugget that the civilian agencies maybe aren't doing that they could um, yeah. based on that strategy that you just outlined? Yeah, Francis, I can think of a couple things. I think the first one is having a risk equation, a risk management framework uh, that's appropriate to the threat. Uh, when IT first started, uh, I think industry kind of fumbled with what's the return on investment with these, these aids. Uh, we're well beyond that, right? The importance of data and information to technology is predominant. It defines businesses now. Uh, but what, what you can't get is a return on investment in cyber defense. It, it differs, right? It's not in the equation. And so you see this perverse effect, almost pathologies in industry. If you have to look at you know, the pipeline exploit, there's an obvious vulnerability. What caused firms to put themselves at such peril? Almost every day we see at it. And so the first thing I would say is you need an appropriate risk management framework. And it's the one that can migrate from defense. And it's not as tied to the standard look of return on investment, right? It's the idea of hey, what's the probability of an attack? What's the vulnerability and what's the consequence? And it's not that we haven't done this in industry. Uh, certainly the Department of Energy, the nuclear energy where the consequence of an attack is so extreme that even in earlier days when the probability and vulnerabilities uh, weren't so exposed, we still use these hardware enforced uh, solutions. And we had a regulation agency and a risk management fr framework appropriate to the threat. Given the increased probability of the attack, given our increased vulnerability tied to a software defenses, which will fail, the hardware pack or the, uh, the malicious packet will always get through. And given now uh, the, the exposure, right? The risk, the consequence uh, to industry that's so manifest, we need a regulatory uh, standard to equate to what we've already done in nuclear and somebody who sets best practices or profit and loss dynamics don't have that pathological effect. And we need to transition from software-based to hardware-enforced uh, technology. Dan, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you, Francis. Great to be here. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it at govmatters.tv. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just enter your email in the red box on our website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because 
the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.